what is your motivation in life? What motivates you? Uh, what, how would you define success? What would success mean for you? Is it that you get to a point where you're financially stable, uh, you have a good retirement, you have the, the what, money for whatever you want to get? Is it the success would be that, hey, I get my dream car, my dream house, and I have my family? Uh, what is success for you? What is it that motivates you? What is it that pushes you through? Like right now, it's just like, all right, I just got to get, I just want to graduate, right? I just want to get this done uh, and then move on to the next thing. And then what is it that motivates you, though, to succeed in your schoolwork? And then what are you doing? Like, what is your goals beyond this place uh, when you leave here? Is it, hey, I want to go to this university or I want to go into this trade and then this is the life I want to do? What is your goal in life? Because what it motivates you, how you define success, and what your goal in life, it changes and affects everything in your life. I think one of the things that's, when I first heard this, it really rocked me to my core and has had me reevaluate how do I define success? What is it that motivates me? What is my goal in life? Because before, it probably would have been, hey, I want to be financially secure. I want to have this in the bank. I want to be able to do this for my family. And, and, it, and that was how I defined my success. Nothing wrong with that. But is that enough? Francis Chan, this is the quote that rocked my world, said, Our greatest fear should not be a failure but of succeeding at things in life that don't really matter. Our greatest fear should not be a failure, but of succeeding at things in life that don't really matter. So we have to, this is part of our renewing our mind, right? As Christians, part of renewing our mind is what is our motivation? What is success in this life? How does God determine success? We're going to see that today in our passage in 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy 4, read it, uh, 4, 6 through 8. As for me, this is Paul speaking to Timothy, my life has already been poured out as an offering to God. The time of my death is near. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, and I have remained faithful. And now the prize awaits me, the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on the day of his return. And the prize is not just for me, but for all who eagerly look forward to his appearing. So, Paul, the context here we know in in 2 Timothy is that Paul's in prison, he's about to get beheaded, and he knows his end is coming, and he's giving this exhortation to Timothy, like, Timothy, I, I'm coming to the end. It's time for you to pick up where I left off and to remain faithful, to remain immovable. This whole idea here that he says, as for me, my life has been poured out as an offering to God, is, is there is actually a thing where you would take wine and you would pour it as an offering to God. And he's saying, my whole life I'm just has been poured out for God. I have nothing left. I have left everything on the table, right? It's kind of that all-in attitude. There's nothing left in the tank. I've poured it all out. It's this whole idea like in Romans 12 where it says, and so dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. 
Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. So don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. This whole pouring out your life is this, is this living out Romans 12, that you're a living sacrifice. And I can't remember who said it. I couldn't find it on the internet. But someone had once said that the problem with a living sacrifice is that it keeps crawling off the altar. And that's where every day we have to remind ourselves, hey, I'm no longer my own. I no longer get to dictate what I want to do with my life. That has already been decided when I gave my life to Jesus. And my, everything that I do, everything that I say, everything that I think needs to be towards that end. I'm going to pour it all out, go all in with Jesus. About two centuries ago, there was missionaries uh, that uh, I am just absolutely fascinated with, right? Uh, a lot of missionaries today, uh, I mean, they're still doing amazing work, uh, but these back then, and there's still some today that have the same type of mentality, and I applaud them. I, they are like their heroes to me. But two centuries ago, they were known as one-way missionaries because the reason they were called one-way missionaries is that they would purchase a ticket, but it was only one way. It wasn't a round-trip ticket. And what they would do, instead of getting suitcases and all their belongings, they actually would put all their belongings in a casket and coffins. Because it was their way of saying, we're not coming back. This is it. We're going to lay it all on the line. We are pouring our lives out. So they would get on the ship, and as they would sail away, they would be waving goodbye knowing that on this side of heaven, this was going to be the last time that they would see their friends and family and the place that they knew as home. Because they were going to the mission field to leverage everything to tell people about Jesus. And they would see their friends and family hopefully in heaven, but they weren't coming back to their earthly home. I remember there was a story of someone uh, that he was on the mission field or she was on the mission field, I can't remember exactly who it was, uh, and they had an infection, a tooth infection, that they had to get them off the mission f- field and, and to take care of it. And while they're taking care of that tooth, they went ahead and said, hey, just pull the rest of my teeth out and just give me dentures because I don't want something like this to cause me to get off the mission field again. There's too much, too much important work to be done. A.W. Mine uh, back in this time uh, that we're talking about, was one of these missionaries. He set sail for the New Hebrides in the South Pacific, aware that the headhunters there uh, had martyred every missionary before him. Mine didn't fear for his life because he had already died to himself. His coffin was packed. For 35 years, he lived among that tribe. When he died, they buried him in the middle of the village, and inscribed on his tombstone was this. When he came, there was no light. When he left, there was no darkness. What would drive someone to do this? What would drive someone to this extreme? Another courageous soul cut, through the, cut from the same cloth was a missionary named James Calvert, who committed his life to reaching the indigenous people of Fiji Islands. 
And it's widely reported that upon his voyage, the ship's captain warned him to turn back, saying, you will lose your life and the lives of those with you if you go among such savages. And Calvert reportedly replied, we died before we came here. What would drive someone like this? A famous missionary that you probably have more heard more recently, Jim Elliott and his companions. They went to reach this tribe that was unreached, and it was amazing what they would do. They actually would, uh, the one guy was a pilot, and they would, to build the relationship with this tribe that was very hostile, they, they, the guy had figured out how to, uh, if he did the plane in a circle, right, they could lower a bucket in one spot. And so the bucket would be here, and the plane would be going this way, and it would keep the bucket right where it was at because they didn't have a helicopter, all right? So, but this guy had figured out how to fly the plane in such a circle that they could lower down stuff and start building the relationship with these people. So the people would get the stuff out of the bucket, they'd raise it back up, and they kept doing that. And then finally, one day, they got a gift, and they, uh, the, and they said, all right, it's time to go. And so they, they went, and they set up, a, they landed the plane, they set up their own little, like, lean-to, and started meeting with the people. And then one day, the... the Two people came out, and as they are going out towards them, all of a sudden they realize something's not right, and they looked behind them, and there was ten of the warriors, and all of them died. And some would say, what a waste. I mean, these are not just your, like, these were bright people. They had a future ahead of them. They had, they had so much to offer, and, and they, they, they die to try to reach people like this? Like, what a waste. And Jim Elliott, he would have replied, this is an actual quote from him, he's no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. These men and many other missionaries understood the implications of Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. The first and most essential act of discipleship is firing the planning committee in your own heart and dying to yourself. It's coming to realize I'm pouring my life out for Jesus. These men and other missionaries lived powerfully for God because they recognized that the greatest barrier to discovering all that God has for us is our self, our preoccupation with our own motives, our own goals, our own way of life. They had come to understand that death is not the end. It's actually our homecoming. And Paul has the same attitude. He's like, listen, my time is done. The time of my death is near. But here's the thing. He goes in verse 7. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have remained faithful. There is no regrets for Paul. There is no regrets. And he's saying the same thing to Timothy. He's like, Timothy, it's a fight. I fought the good fight. And it is a fight. It's a constant struggle. But here's the thing. The victory's already been achieved. So you're fighting from victory, not for the victory. But it is still a fight. It is still a struggle. And just like any race, he says, I have, I have uh, finished the race. Races aren't easy. It's constant struggle. It is keeping that focus. It is 
putting that one foot in front of the other. It is giving, not giving in to the pain and the, the tiredness. It is remaining faithful. It is being immovable. And that is what we're called to, is that he's remained faithful. Faithfulness is what God asks of us. Faithfulness is doing the right thing even when it comes at high cost. Faithfulness is leveraging all your energy and talents for His glory. Faithfulness is standing with God when everyone else turns their back. Faithfulness is standing immovable with God when no one else will. And there is no higher calling than ministry. For you are participating in eternity. You are participating with God to change people's eternity. And you need to understand this right here, right now, that your life, if you've given it to Jesus, is ministry. You are all in ministry. It doesn't matter what kind of career or job you go into. Your first and foremost priority is ministry. It is leveraging all that you have, all that God blesses you with for His kingdom. It's pouring your life out. It's being that living sacrifice. And I can tell you this, while it is going to be a fight and it will be a struggle, when you see Him, there will be no regrets. Verse 8, And now the prize awaits me. I fought the good fight, I finished the race, and I've remained faithful, and now the prize awaits me. And what is this prize? The crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on the day of his return. And the prize is not just for me, but for all who eagerly look forward to his appearing. Our prize is this crown, and he calls it the crown, and it's the righteousness of God. And we might be like, wait a minute, is this works-oriented? Like, is Paul all of a sudden changing his tune that, hey, we do all these things to earn our righteousness with God? Is that what he's saying here? No, it's, it's saying that our salvation and our righteousness, it comes through Jesus, comes through what he's already completed, and we are accredited that when we put our faith in him and are baptized. And we have the responsibility, though, from then on to work out and implement that righteousness, that new way of life by the power of the Holy Spirit. So the righteousness is already based on what Jesus has done, and we learn to get comfortable in our new clothes with the power of the Holy Spirit by submitting to Him. And what he's saying here is that the crown is given. It's saying it's not earned, all right? It's not something that we get because we lived the perfect life. It's actually a sign of completion. He's just finished the race, and what they would give people back then is not the medals, but they would actually crown them with the, the you've seen it in the movies and all that kind of stuff, right? The, like, leaf uh, crowns that they would give him. And he's saying, hey, they, the, I'm getting my prize. And then what it is, it's a sign of completion. It's saying the race is over. The fight is over. The struggle is over. You're home. The promise of God's righteousness is a promise to all with this one qualification. Paul says, this prize is not just for me, but for all who eagerly look forward to his appearing. Some say who long for his appearing. So let me ask you, do you long for his appearing? I mean, are you so consumed with him that you want nothing but him? 
do you love him more? Do you love him more than maybe achieving that success that you want? Do you love him more than anything and anyone in this world? I love my family, but I love Jesus more. I love you guys, but I love Jesus more. Can, we, can you honestly say that, that you long for his appearing? That, you know what, even if I don't get married, even if I don't do this, even if I don't do that, it doesn't matter. All I do is I long for you, Jesus. I long for your appearing. It doesn't matter if I get to achieve all the other things. All I want is you, is your greatest desire. Here's the thing, your greatest desire will dictate your life. So what is your greatest desire? Is seeing him face to face and being in his presence your greatest desire? Can you truly say that? Because here's the thing, this is what awaits us. Then as I looked, I saw a door standing open in heaven, and the same voice I had heard before spoke to me like a trumpet blast. The voice said, come up here, and I will show you what must happen after this. And instantly I was in the Spirit, and I saw a throne in heaven, and someone sitting on it. The one sitting on the throne was as brilliant as gemstones, like jasper and carnelian, and the glow of an emerald circled his throne like a rainbow. Twenty-four uh, thrones surrounded him, and twenty-four elders sat on them. They were all clothed in white and had gold crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumble of thunder, and in front of the throne were seven torches with burning flames. This is the sevenfold Spirit of God. In front of the throne was a shiny sea of glass, sparkling like a crystal. In the center and around the throne were four living beings, each covered with eyes, front and back. The first of these living beings was like a lion, the second was like an ox, the third a human face, and the fourth was like an eagle in flight. Each of these living beings had six wings, and their wings were covered all over with eyes, and inside and out. Day after day and night after night, they kept on saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, the one who always was, who is, and who is still to come. Whenever the living beings give glory and honor and thanks to the one sitting on the throne, the, the one who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fell down and worshiped the one sitting on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever. And they lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and they exist because you created what you pleased. God is our prize. Do you long for this? Do you long for His appearing? It is, is He your greatest desire? When you see Him, you will recognize your unworthiness. That it, to, and to, when you are, all of a sudden, you are surrounded by splendor that is so hard to even comprehend. When you realize the torment of hell that you've been rescued from. And when you see him face to face, you will also be completely overwhelmed and realize your unworthiness. And we would be joining 
the 24 elders here, where we're taking our crowns and we're casting them at his feet, saying, hey, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy of this. But we will know that our race is over. Our fight is over. It's all completed. But do you long for this? Is he your greatest desire? Because for, for so many, not just non-Christians, for, for Christians too, living in comfort and economic security is their desire. And they're building up their own kingdom with no thought of eternity, no thought of heaven. They have become nearsighted, as Colossians 3 talks about, is not to become nearsighted, but focus your thoughts on things above. Listen, you have to start understanding this now before you get further into life. This world is not your home. This is not our home. Our loyalty does not lie with the things of this world. Our priorities are supposed to be different. James 4 says, You adulterers, don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? I say it again, if you want to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. Where is your loyalty? Where is your priorities? This is not our home. Do not get comfortable here. If you think it is, I mean, just look at all the sin and evil that runs rampant. It declares that this is not our home. We don't belong here. And when we have those desires that can't be fulfilled here, it's a sign that we are meant for something else. Our constant struggle with sin, it's so tiring. But knowing that the end is coming, we can hold on. We can remain faithful. We can be immovable. But we got to ask ourselves, does my life and my priorities, my goals, my ambitions, does it truly make sense in light of eternity? If I truly believe that God is on his throne, that he is in complete control, everything's going to work towards his good, and it is all going to come to completion, and that all the resources are his, and that if I make his kingdom first, he will provide everything that I need. If we truly believe that, does our life make sense? Or do we believe God just enough, but hey, I'm still going to hold on to this much? Because I don't believe Him fully. Are you all in? Are you pouring your life out? Listen, live for the second coming. Leverage everything for the kingdom. If you died tomorrow, if you died tomorrow, would you, how would you live today? Because we're not guaranteed the next even 30 minutes. But if you die tomorrow, how would you truly live today? What changes would you make? How much bolder would you be? How fearless would you be? My question is, then why aren't you doing that? We have to die to ourselves today so that we might live tomorrow. We have to keep our focus and realize what awaits us. What are we fighting for? What is the race that we're on? Because in dying now, you will truly come to life. That is the key to life. Because someday, someday, Jesus is coming back. We're told that in verse 1 of James or of 2 Timothy. Remember? Someday, He's coming back. Perhaps today. 
Perhaps today is the day. We don't know. So we have to live with that expectation that perhaps today is the day. And if we lived with that kind of mentality, how would you live differently? Thinking that at any moment, Jesus is coming back, and it could happen, perhaps today. Are you ready? Are you ready to be able to stand before your king and see him face to face? Because he's coming back. Today might be that day. And we have to start lining our priorities and staying focused on the race and fight the good fight. And carry on what those that have come before us have started. Look, I am coming soon, bringing my reward with me to repay all people according to their deeds. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes. They will be permitted to enter through the gates of the city and eat their fruit from the tree of life. Outside the city are the dogs, the sorcerers, the sexual immorale, the murderers, the idol worshipers, and all who love to live a lie. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this message for the churches. I am both the source of David and the heir to his throne. I am the bright morning star, the spirit and the bride. The bride, his people say, come. Let anyone who hears this say, come. Let anyone who is thirsty, come. Let anyone who desires drink freely from the water of life. He who is the faithful witness to all these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, come, Lord Jesus, come.